Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine. And we are back to talk about, well, something not as terrifying as Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Yeah. Um, even though in name and purpose it should be more terrifying. <laughs> uh, and depending on your proclivities toward horror, perhaps it is. And that is Netflix's... Uh, Freshly released, uh, basically in the few days run up to Halloween this year, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, an anthology-style series in the vein of Night Gallery and Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents of curated short stories put to film, uh, selected by and and produced by um, the current master of horror? I uh, uh- is there anybody fighting for that title anymore? No. I mean, I, I don't think so. Del Toro has positioned himself almost, even though he's he's not a grandfather. Well, he may be a grandfather at this point. He probably could be. Um, he's kind of like you know the granddaddy of horror at this point. He he is is our our you know dear curator of, of these stories, but also of sort of the horror genre at this point. His uh, horror films at at, uh, at this point in his career are pretty legendary. We've talked about several of them on here, and I'm sure we'll talk about others in the future. Um, but uh, so Del Toro has collected here and assembled for Netflix a a sort of classic style anthology, right? We still, I, I must say, that in the last couple of years, we're in a bit of a horror or just anthology series rena- renaissance, kind of. Um, it seems like people are are back to embracing the sort of short form storytelling. I mean, it's, it's always been there, right? You know, even in the, the years when anthology storytelling was not successful, you had things like black mirror and stuff like that, but it really does seem maybe because of American horror story sort of setting it off amongst wine moms. I, I don't know. Um, maybe that's, that's legitimized the, <laughs> the series again. Yet another thing we can thank Ryan Murphy for <sighs> golly. Um, but it, it just really seems like people are more comfortable now with the idea of a, a show that is made up of non-connected stories. Um, and, and so here we have the cabinet of curiosities, which is a legit cabinet. That's one of the things I loved about this. They actually built a cabinet of curiosities. I'm sure there's some CG assistance going on, uh, throughout the uh, series, but, um, by all accounts, comes out of an actual cabinet. That's right. Yay. It's an actual cabinet of curiosities, uh, which is the opening Del Toro positions as a legitimate thing that people used to have. Right? They would have a little curio cabinet. Right? That's where we even get that term, a cabinet for my curiosities, um, and and that that was how you would share these interesting things that you had discovered over the course of your travels or your life or what have you. And so, um, you know, using that as a jumping-off point, each uh, compartment of the cabinet of curiosities is a different story. It holds a curio that leads to the telling of a story. And um so and these stories oh, we we have to to recognize that Guillermo del Toro introduces every single episode and he, he might does. be the most adorable man ever. It really does a great job of setting the tone. It's it's like it's like Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. but yet adorable i just can't i can't even explain i just love him i every intro was was even sweeter than the last (laughs) yeah he's he's you know ironically this master of horror 
you know, this guy who has positioned himself in such a way is really one of the most amiable, kind, supportive filmmakers. And, and I think that's because his ethos about horror is that, you know, cliche though it may be, the true monsters are, are us, right? Not the monsters themselves. And, and so he has, has adopted that as a sort of personal philosophy in some ways, and he brings that to his work. And so uh, he does, in a very sort of Alfred Hitchcock or, or Rod Serling style, he comes in and introduces each episode. He presents the curiosity that sort of is the touchstone for the episode, and then very importantly introduces the director, which I think is the thing that Del Toro brings to the table here that a lot of other sort of previous anthology series intentionally try to obfuscate, which is the create the creative people behind the anthology stories. Um, you know, they try to present it as a sort of single unified block, whereas Del Toro here is specifically calling out, these are the filmmakers that made this. Um, so it, it also feels like a way for Del Toro to amplify the talents and, and potentially the careers, I suppose, of some of these, um, in some ways, very well-established horror directors and in others, some people who really could use a little bit more of a popular push, right? Um, one episode of this is directed, for example, by David Pryor, who we've talked, we've about. raved about, um, in regards to his fantastic, Imp- the empty man. Um, so Pryor is a longtime documentarian, mostly working with David Fincher who branched out, made his own original film, the empty man a few years ago, the Fox Disney merger saw that film buried under corporate garbage. Um, and even to this day, it was on HBO Max for a long time. It's no longer on HBO Max. And there is no physical release of the film. Which, which is wild. A, it's a great movie. Yeah. And as a guy who collects physical media, I try desperately to not go too overboard these days. But um, I, I would love to have a copy of The Empty Man. Uh, if, I would love to. I would pay for it right now. Like that, I would just, you know, it's the fry meme from Futurama. Just take my money, but it doesn't exist because I, I assume it's complicated licensing and rights holders uh, issues. But so he did an episode of this and it's pretty well, solid. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, so then we also have some luminaries like Jennifer Kent, who directed the Babadook, Catherine Hardwick, uh, who, uh, you know, directed uh, Twilight, which we've also discussed. Um, but we even have some guys like uh, Vincenzo Natale, who's done a tremendous amount of great work throughout the years. Um, uh, it's the guy to Cube, right? Didn't yeah. Natale do Cube? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the Cube guy. <laughs> um, you know, so we've, we've got uh, a really wide array of talents. Each episode, you know, story is allowed to sort of exist on its own terms. They have their own visual styles. They have their own production design styles. Um, it's, it's very much like you're seeing these little mini movies from incredibly talented people. So, um, you know, we're going to, you know, for the purposes of, you know, being on the internet, I guess we've arranged our faves into a conveniently numbered list that we will count (laughs) down for you from eight to one, but know that even though we are going to rank these in order, there is really not a bad one of these in the bunch. These are eight wonderfully directed, brilliantly acted, nicely designed, short horror stories based on some truly great horror stories from the past. There was not a Um, one of these that I didn't enjoy in some way, which is remarkable because usually 
every single anthology show, even just regular TV shows, there will be episodes that that I just I walk away from them like that sucked. That was like a waste of an hour, especially when I was watching them week to week. You know, there would be that one week where it was like, well, this was just a huge waste. This Why did I even watch yeah. the show? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the X-Files was really guilty of that one where it would just. God damn it. I was just going to talk about <laughs> the X-Files. <laughs> Out of my head. <laughs> but like they had so many stinkers where, you know, you really did feel like you wasted your time. And then the next week it would come back with something totally different. Right. It would be fantastic. Um, but right. this is you this know, is different. I enjoyed all of these. Yeah, I mean, the X-Files example I was going to give is that really with the X-Files, what happened is the really the first three seasons, what you saw were an overwhelming number of great episodes and then perhaps three to four clunkers per season. Where it was yeah. just like, well, that wasn't very good or it wasn't as good. But unfortunately, as the series went on and on and, you know, production behind the scenes became more chaotic, you know, the leads didn't want to do it anymore. The ratio shift. You started <laughs> to see the ratio shift where you were now getting like, you know, and these were 22 to 24 episode seasons as well, which was a different landscape of TV at the time. But, you know, you would wind up with like 10 episodes that were really good. And then like 12 that were just like, uh, yeah, okay. just passing the time. But each one of these episodes, even if it ranks lower in, in our respective lists for whatever reason, it's actually still really good. And there is plenty here for you to get into. So much so that I think that my list could be wildly different than someone else's and still come to the conclusion that it's a great show, right? It's, yeah. it's just kind of the way it works. Cause there's a lot of taste here as well. The, the productions were given apparently so much freedom to just sort of do their own thing that you have something like uh, Panos Cosmatos, uh, his, the viewing, which has a very distinct visual style that we would expect from Panos Cosmatos, director of Mandy and beyond the black rainbow. Um, and then something like Lot 36, which is a much more traditionally shot, sort of, you know, clearly more articulated. Like an Outer Limits episode. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. That one, and I'm sure we'll get to it when we talk about it, but that one felt more like just a straight, like Twilight Zone episode, yeah. you know, um, a, a very good one, but still. So, yeah, there's just, there's a lot to really sink into here. And uh, the nice thing is, is that, you know, there's there's no connective tissue that drives each episode. So you can literally just jump in and watch the ones that look interesting to you um, without fear of, you know, oh, did I miss something? Is there some larger ongoing narrative that I need to be aware of? And and Del Toro blissfully avoids all of that, even in his intros. They, they are all standalone. They're all unique. They all do the basically same thing. Uh, so you don't have to sort of follow through, which I thought was really Again, refreshing because a lot of those anthology stories now, like the you know the Ryan Murphy model, it's a whole season of a story, and then it just resets on the next season. But this is episode to episode, so that is still a little bit different. Um, but uh, so again, I th- I think just in terms of overall reaction, if you haven't watched any of these episodes yet and you want to go check it out, it is on Netflix. Um, there, all episodes have been released at this point. They're released over three nights leading up to Halloween, which I thought was a great release strategy. Um, three or four nights, I guess it was four nights, but, um, they're all available now and, uh, certainly ready for your viewing pleasure. And, and I will go ahead and say, I won't speak for you. Um, I recommend it yeah. highly, oh, yeah. especially if you're a horror fan. I mean, but even if you're not a horror fan, there are a couple of episodes that we'll talk about that I think are just kind of beautiful and well done that even if you're not like into horror movies, 
you there's still, like still it. just some good storytelling here, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So what was, what were your overall feelings before we dig in? Um, I, I just crave this kind of anthology television. Um, cause you know, I don't, I don't spend ungodly amounts of time watching series and I'm, I'm much more like I'd rather watch a movie than sure, a television yeah, series right. just because I, I don't have a tremendous amount of time. And when I do sit down, like I want it to be a complete experience. Like, <laughs> I don't want to have cliffhangers and tune in next time and, and binge watching. Like that's just really, it's stressful and I, I just end up getting really worn out by it. Um, and I've mm. done it a lot in the past. So I love anthology shows like this, especially like this. And of course, you know, you and I grew up, we were big fans of the Twilight Zone, big fans of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And mm -hmm. that's what this reminds me of. I mean, we even watched some of the anthology shows that were shit, like Tales from the Crypt, you know, just because it yeah, was... Yeah, Tales it's from a, the Dark Side. Yeah, like uh, it's a format Friday, The that Nightmare works. on Elm Street one, yeah. Um, so I was really excited by the entire idea. And of course, I love Guillermo del Toro. He's just my sweet cherub of a horror director. And I just think he's wonderful. Um, and then all of the directors, when the directors started getting talked about, it's like, holy shit, this is going to be really good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is going to be worth your time. Um, so I absolutely loved sitting down after work and watching something that was self-contained that, you know, wrapped up in an hour and felt complete but also wasn't like a three and a half hour movie i'm because i'm right I, it wasn't a huge investment i've gone on record on this podcast saying i hate long movies um <laughs> so i really really enjoyed that these just felt like little horror films yes absolutely um we went to see black panther wakanda forever <laughs> um and it was very good so i i did not i honestly did not know how they were going to pull that off i mean it's it's rare that a huge franchise loses its primary star in such horrendous fashion. Um, so I, I really didn't know what they were going to do with it, if it was going to work and, and they do. Um, uh, most people have seen trailers and screenshots. Now uh, Namor is in it, uh, which they do some very interesting things with that character. One of the oldest characters in the Marvel universe um, to sort of bring him into the world in a way that makes sense. So that was really cool. But it is also two hours and 43 minutes long. God. To which I was like, sweet Jesus. <laughs> like, the only, the only movie in the MCU longer is Endgame. The one where everything Killing ends. Me. Right? So it's, it, it was excellent. I, I think, you know, if you are a Marvel fan, uh, or just a fan of the original Black Panther, who enjoyed what Chadwick Boseman was able to do with T'Challa as a character this film, is um, I guess it was Mark Kermode who said that it the film was elegaic in its quality, and I would agree. The whole, you know they don't just do like the tribute at the opening to him; like the whole movie is really about reconciling and dealing with the fact that you know Black Panther is gone. But it is almost meta narrative for how the the cast and crew feel with Chadwick Boseman being gone. Like it's, it's really sort of got an interesting layer of that to it, which I'm, I'm not going to say is inherently something that makes it good, but it certainly did give it a, 
it gave it a mournful note that a lot of Marvel movies don't hit, right? Which in and of itself made it kind of unique. But yes, that that time investment is the issue, though, right? We spent literally the entire afternoon in a theater to watch one yeah. movie, you know. So it's it's something to consider. But I, I too uh, enjoyed it, and you know, there's obviously been a flurry of press around Guillermo del Toro around this, and I, I learned a piece of trivia that. I don't think I knew before. Um, I did know, and most people do. Uh, Del Toro obviously is is a Mexican filmmaker. He came from the Mexican filmmaking uh, world. His first film that you know achieved some international success, um, uh, Cronus. No, what is that one called? Cronos. Cronos. Yeah. Um, you know, was made in Mexico, and and you know he was already building a name for himself, and then he came to the United States to direct Mimic, and and you know. The rest is history. But during that transitory period, Del Toro's family was still living in Mexico and his father was kidnapped by thugs, right? Um, And held ransom for like a million dollars is what they wanted. And Del Toro at that time, so early in his career, I mean, that's, he didn't have that money. So um, fortunately there was someone who had that money and who provided him with that money so that he could rescue, you know, his father from these thugs. And uh, from your, your chuckle before, I think you know who it is. Um, I do. And and so who provided it? None other than one Jimmy Mr. James Cameron. Cameron. Uh, the big God, JC. The big JC coming in for the save. Dude, the guy just never ceases to amaze me. If I did know that fact, I'd forgotten it. But, you know, I heard him talking about it on an interview or something. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> just James Cameron just gives Guillermo del Toro a million dollars, you know, to save the life of his dad. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I you know, James Cameron has more money than God, I guess. Well, that, but, was, like, um, that was like Titanic money, wasn't it? I It would have happened that point? around that time. Yeah, the early 2000s. <laughs> But uh, yeah, just crazy. Um, so side note on that, there was a trailer for Way of Water in front of Black Panther. Mm. You never discount Jimmy C. <laughs> never. Ever. I, d- I never do. That thing. That thing looks amazing. Like uh, amazing. As good as the original Avatar looked. And it still holds up fairly well. We watched it not too long ago. Um, that new one looks like holy crap. It looks really good. And I didn't realize, but Sigourney Weaver is back. Um, I thought she died. And, uh, well, she has been reincarnated as Jake and Neytiri's daughter. Uh. And so Sigourney Weaver is playing a teenager in this one uh, huh. who is discovering that she has seemingly some connections to the world of Pandora because of this experience um, or, or that seems to be where it's going. Well, you know, uh, anyway, Hey, I'm sure again, it'll be something. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look at, at James Cameron and be like, ah, that's a dumb idea. James Cameron, you don't know what you're doing. It's like, Nope, he, he does. <laughs> he always does. All right. So uh, let's, let's get into the cabinet of curiosities, our ranked lists. Uh, so we're going to go in order. We'll, we'll present our, our number eight, number seven, number six, so on and so forth. And uh, then whichever one you have selected in that slot, I'll, I'll say what was in mine, but we'll save talking about my selections until we hit them in your list. If there's a difference, although I have a feeling we're going to be, we'll probably be pretty similar, but we'll see. Yeah, these top ones may be a little different. 
Um, Because we're starting with the ones that we liked the least. And the least is in quotation marks, like heavy quotation marks. Uh, Yeah, it is. It is just the least of these really good episodes. Yeah. So the one that I, I think was the least impressive was actually the first episode, Lot 36. Um, okay. I liked it, but it wasn't, It I don't really feel compelled to watch it again. Sure. Um, but I did, I did enjoy it. Like, I, I think, I think it was the one that had the, the biggest problem with resolution. I wasn't really happy with how the episode resolved. It's, it does end abruptly. Yeah. And we don't really get a sense of the scale of what has just taken place. It's yeah. all very contained within this very small story. Uh, I would agree. So so my number eight was actually Dreams in the Witch House, um, featuring Ron Weasley as the guy <laughs> who dreams in the witch house. Um, and uh, again, we'll talk about this when we get to it in your list. But that, for me, was was towards the bottom, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, so let's talk about Lot 36. So Lot 36 is based on a short story by Guillermo del Toro, unpublished, I presume, um, and directed by his longtime cinematographer, uh, Guillermo Navarro. Um, which uh, one thing I will unabashedly say about the episodes, it looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the best shot episodes in terms of its cinematography and technique. Uh, the lighting plays a huge role. Um, I guess we can lay out that it's about a, this is set in the 1990s, right around the time that the Gulf war is starting. And, um, it actually opens with George H W Bush making the you know announcement of you know the establishment of the new world order and all this stuff <laughs> um and uh primarily features tim blake nelson who is great i mean come on it's just tim blake nelson like there's there's very little that that man can do that he doesn't elevate at this point um and he is a a i presume a former vietnam veteran i think that, that seems to be what yeah it's being that was set the up vibe as who um, is is in some dire financial straits and is purchasing a storage locker auction or purchasing a storage locker at auction after the owner, who we do see briefly at the beginning, has died of a heart attack. They believe there's something valuable inside. He has kind of an inside accomplice at the storage facility who makes sure that he knows when all the best units are going up for sale and that kind of thing. And, uh, and in essence, it's about what's inside and when, when he discovers what's inside, what kind of money can be made from that. Um, but, uh, so what, what worked, what did work in this episode for you? Um, I love Tim Blake Nelson. I think he gave a really good performance. I liked that it was, um, very bleak. Like it was, it was the nineties. And it felt very familiar, but boy, it was bleak. And it was kind of like the 90s, how we don't want to remember it, just in terms of the look. Um, and uh, I I really liked the concept. Like, I just find the entire idea of digging through people's storage units very creepy. Um, oh, it's I know that was glorious concept. Yeah. That was such a big thing for a while in like the mid 2010s there was like that tv show where people were buying storage units and then going through them on the reality show storage wars is that what it was called fucking terrible (laughs) 
Uh, and it was just it was just abysmal. Like you see the you know, it's reality TV. So you see the absolute worst of humanity. Um, but I loved the idea of that. And I think I remember even then seeing an episode because I'm pretty sure our parents were really into it. Um, Guaranteed. Yes. I saw an episode and I was like, man, think of just the stories that you could write about weird shit you could find in someone's mm-hmm. storage unit. And it's such a wonderful concept. Um so that really did work for me. Uh, and and like you said, it is, it's just beautiful to look at. Like, it's shot really, really well. Um, but like I said, I, I kind of wish that maybe in the first part it moved a little bit faster so that we had more time to resolve the events at the end of the episode. Yeah, this one felt a bit unbalanced. Um, it, there's a lot of setup. They spend a lot of time yeah. establishing that Tim Blake Nelson's character is a racist, right? He's listening to a Rush Limbaugh facsimile on the radio and sort of nodding his head like, yeah. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not sure we needed that um, much setup. I think they could have trimmed that back and we still would have gotten the picture sure. that he's a douchebag. Definitely, because he eventually has an altercation. Um, you know, they we find out that the storage facility... By mistake, you know, the guy's legitimately upset about it, but he, there's nothing he can do um, that a a woman of, of Mexican origin, right? I I don't know what else to, to say because she says she's from yeah, there. She's, she's like not Hispanic an or something. She's just Hispanic. And and so she had a storage locker. She moved. There was a billing problem. They, you know, evicted her from the storage locker. They sold it off. And Tim Blake Nelson's character bought that. And and she just wants to at least see what he has left so that she can try and get, you know, family pictures, you know, the, everything else that was in there. And he just sort of flat out def- refuses to help her. And and that sort of obviously has a significant payoff. It was a end. very Twilight Zone finish. <laughs> very Twilight Zone. Yes. Um, um, because what he, I guess we could go ahead and say what he eventually finds inside the storage locker is evidence of occult ritual and as as Guillermo del Toro is fond of bringing into his storytelling Nazis. Yeah. Um, and rightly so. Never should we forget that Nazis suck and they deserve everything that is and coming it, to them. And they're definitely in hell. And <laughs> Yes, I did like that. That was nice. And they're and definitely they would fuck with demons. So, you know, there you go. Right. And I don't know if we need to go into it much more than that. Yeah, he discovers just, these things. It's really it, good. And it's and it's great because it's yeah. the first episode. Like they come out of the gate with this. It's a good tone setter. Yes, yeah. Very much so. But I just um, wanted some good more special effects end. as well. Worth noting. But yes, it ends very, very abruptly, appropriately, but abruptly. And and we don't really get to really sort of I don't want to say grovel, but we don't really get to sort of live in the world after whatever it is that he's done yeah. takes place. So a lovely tone setter, some beautiful moments, a great performance by Tim Blake Nelson. Um, you know, definitely a great place to begin if you just don't kind of know what you want out of a series like this, right? If you're um, just sort of trying to figure out what it's all about, it's it's certainly good for that. All right, so your number seven. This one was Dreams in the Witch House. And this was Lot 36. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just swapped. So we, we flipped it. Um, we did a little I, flippy do. I put this one higher because I love Catherine Hardwick's color. 
I just yes. think she uses mm-hmm. color so beautifully. And the tendency with horror is to drain the color out of everything. And I think I was sort of afraid when I saw her name that it was going to end up being like Twilight, which did kind of have the color sure. drained out of it. Um, but no, this was In absolutely some cases, beautiful. on purpose. Yeah. To full black and white. Yeah. Um, but this, yeah. this was absolutely lovely to look at. It's just unfortunate it that the camera was focused on Rupert Grint so much. Yeah. So like I said, this was, this was the bottom of my list. This was my number eight. Um, and, and some of the things I liked about it were the production design. Um, the design of the witch in specific, I think yeah. was really, really cool. cool. Um, this one of all of them is the one that felt the most, I'll go ahead and call it theatrical. The sets yeah. felt like sets, um, especially when they're in the dream world. Um, it felt very artificial and, and on purpose, right? Not artificial, like, oh, we didn't have the money to pump some more smoke in here, but that she was playing up the the overtly theatrical nature of what's going on inside this guy's mind as he's dreaming these dreams. And so um, a lot of that worked for me. Some of it didn't. I mean, DJ Qualls is the little rat guy running around was, you know, that was weird. Fine is, but, but it was a, it was a weird is, choice. This is also based on a story by HP Lovecraft. It is. Yes. For uh, and, better or for worse. And okay, so H.P. Lovecraft basically wrote two stories. One is the story of the mostly well-meaning guy, usually an academic, who discovers something he doesn't understand and gets way in over his head. That's story type number one. Story type number two is obsessive guy had bad thing happen. Now he obsesses over thing until he dies. Right? <laughs> that's story number two. Now, I... There are a couple other variations on this, but in general, that's my least favorite of Lovecraft stuff. I summarize like weird obsessive dude. Lovecraft. Cause like, I don't, I don't. Okay. Uh, how to put this delicately. I summarized Lovecraft to my don't partner. Bring while the we Lovecraft were... <laughs> fans after us. Oh my God. Yeah. Like this people you don't want to fuck with. Um, but while we were watching it to my, my partner, I, I summarized Lovecraft as it's always like a thing that makes you go mad. Like, it's mm-hmm. a house, but it makes you go mad. It's a right. painting, it's, and it makes a, you go mad. Like it's that's, a snow-capped mountain, and it, and makes, it makes you, you go, go mad. mad. Like, that's, <laughs> right. that's really the setup for most of his work. And I know there are other good things about it. He did, you know, some, some important world-building. Um, but his stuff is not as well aged as one would hope. So it's, it's already difficult material to adapt, I think. Yeah. And we'll see it again. There's a second (laughs) HP Lovecraft short story in this one called Pikmin's model, um, which is actually a short story that I I do enjoy. I used to actually teach that one when I was teaching high school um, because it was short and it allowed you to sort of talk about the cosmic horror stuff. And, um, and it's, it's one of the ones that feels sort of connected directly to Poe. It yeah. feels like he's just riffing on a Poe story. Um, and in some ways, I think he was, if I remember, there's some background elements in Pikmin's model that are just kind of pulled from other Poe stories. Um, so, I mean, like, but Dreams of a Witch House, again, I, it's not a knock against the episode. I think it's a fine episode. But Rupert Grint is a liability. I, I just, 
he's not a bad actor and he does fine with what he's given here. He really does. I just, I don't enjoy watching him do things. He just didn't bring Um, much to it. Like he didn't do a bad job, but he also didn't do anything with it. So I, well, there is one person who I enjoyed seeing and that was Ismail Cruz Cordova. That's correct. Arondir is is alive and well. And I really did like him. His accent went a little funny. Yeah, you could tell they were all kind of struggling with that Bostonian accent. Not as bad as in Pickman's model. No, Lord. Not as bad in that one. Uh, Crispin Glover, my God. (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, all of H.P. Lovecraft's stories take place deep in New England, most of them in Massachusetts. And so they were trying to do a period accurate uh, accurate Massachusetts accent. And and it comes and goes, as one might expect. But, uh, in, you know, the basic thrust of the story is a young man sees his sister die and be pulled into some sort of forest. He spends the rest of his life, you know, hunting down mediums. He joins a, uh, a, a society of people who are studying, studying the paranormal uh, in his time and is going around trying to find, you know, people who have true access to the the other side and then eventually runs afoul of i guess they're intended to be native americans i guess they're native americans and then they basically send him on a drug-induced trip to what they call like you know the forest on the other side or whatever they get him where he is able balls that's right that's right because that was another you know fun part of hp lovecraft there's a lot of drug use for the 1900s um and so it becomes again it's this obsessive search to Reclaim his sister at all costs. Reclaiming her opens up an evil that he has no real understanding of and no way to defeat. And bad things happen in the witch house where he is is living. It does modify the original short story pretty heavily, but you know the the basic bones of it are there. Um, but again, Hardwick's direction is very good. Their production design, while stagey, is is excellent and. And this does have one of the richer color palettes of any of these episodes, apart from maybe uh, Cosmatos' episode. So uh, a lovely one. Again, the witch design is is amazing. Like, I think it's, it's nigh on perfect. But as a, a total story, it just was a bit of a dud for me. Just yeah. didn't land. Um, again, but I don't, I don't like the obsessive, wild-eyed weirdos that H.P. Lovecraft wrote. I much prefer the studious academics who are forced to confront something their academic minds can't reasonably comprehend. And it makes them go mad. Go (laughs) mad. Just as mad as a hatter. (laughs) Like it's just the way it goes. Um, Much preferable to me. Um, You know, Mountains of Madness, I think is a great story. Del Toro, uh, you know, off the back of this is, I I guess the, the NDA on all of that has finally expired. He finally put out a bit of the test footage that he created for his mountains of madness adaptation that never really got off the ground. Looked pretty good. Looked like some ideas of things we saw in cabinet of curiosities, Mm. actually some recycled ideas. Uh, But yeah, so dreams of the witch house um, definitely on, it was on the bottom of my list, but um, still a, a worthy adaptation and a, and a pretty fun romp if you can kind of get into it if you can see past you know ron weasley and gryffindor house or whatever also it had one of the best one-liners get the fuck out of my church that was great that was, <laughs> that was really funny <laughs> i didn't expect that, that like i good. did not see that coming <clears throat> get the fuck out of my church 
so good. Yeah, that's that's pretty solid. Yeah, he gets kicked out of a lot of different stuff in that episode. (laughs) He's constantly being ejected from societies and buildings. Just get out of here, Ron Weasley. We're tired of looking at your face. Um, but yeah, I did like the the sub story of Ismail Cordova's character. Is he's kind of like very interested, but he's trying to like you know eat, have a job. So he becomes like an intern at Time Magazine as it's getting off the ground or something. It's very interesting, but clever. Not bad at all. Uh, all right, so your number six. Uh, this, we just talked about it, it was Pickman's model because okay. Crispin Glover, holy shit, what the hell is wrong with him? <laughs> <laughs> um, my number six was The Outside um, by uh, Lemmy, uh, Lily Amirpour, um, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, again, I think we're we're sort of flip-flopping on a few of these, but... Uh, so yes, Pickman's model is the other HP Lovecraft adaptation from this uh, series. This one has been adapted before, however, um, most famously in an episode of the night gallery, <laughs> the, the follow-up to twilight zone that yeah. Ron Serling did when everything went to color. Um, and that episode of night gallery is actually pretty good. Um, and it's a pretty good adaptation of the original short story, um, which Again, this is the the other type of H.P. Lovecraft story, the one I like more, um, because in this one we have a guy named, was it named Thurber, who is a painter. And, it's and it's is, uh, Fuckface from Westworld. That's, uh, yes. I can't, is, who's, is what is that guy's guy name? From Westworld, I couldn't tell you. It just, when I see his face, I just, I hate his face because I hated him on that show so much. I mean, and then yeah, he, he died, like the, so it wasn't a big deal. He was like but... the friend on Westworld. He was the the rich kid. Ah, oh, terrible. The trouble. Terrible. Um, yes. So, so he plays Thurber, and in this story, it's about a guy who is introduced to a painter through his various painter, painter, painter circles, I guess. All these guys uh, sitting named... around talking about art like it actually matters. <laughs> right. Just sitting in big rooms and being like, Uh, Gentlemen, are we going to decide what the hot art is this year? What will be the art? Yes. What? uh, How many boats? How many (laughs) boats in the art this year? Seven? Seven boats? All right. We'll go with that. Uh, Cigars, please. I'll have some Uh, good Uh, art. (laughs) Whatever art societies were like (laughs) in the late 1800s, I guess. Um, so a uh, guy from Westworld plays our, our main character, Thurber, who that is the narrator of the original story as well, uh, who gets fleshed out a lot more here. In the original, he's just a guy who sort of encounters Pikmin. Uh, he's fascinated by Pikmin's artistic technique and his renderings because his paintings are full of horrific things. Um, and so the the question in the original is, is you know, Thurber is obsessed with where Pikmin gets his ideas from right how can you envision such terrors and there's a lot with like you know dark alleys and streets in boston and the strange history of of you know massachusetts in general you know the type of stuff that you would expect from a lovecraft story um in this one thurber we get you know we see his family he's got you know a young child eventually he has an initial meeting with pickman when he's in school and and sort of is on his side kind of an ally for reasons that we don't really fully understand. He just seems kind of obsessed with him after one like free drawing session where he draws the model, like all torn up and, you know, cut up and stuff. And the guy's like, Oh, this is amazing. And, uh, 
it's really kind of a one trick pony. The short story is a one trick pony. And once you see the one trick pony coming, it's kind of, kind of doesn't really, doesn't have much impact after that point. Yeah. Um, but so in essence, anybody who looks too long at a Pikmin painting kind of goes nuts, kind of goes, goes mad. (laughs) Right. And, um, so Thurber is seemingly towards the end of the episode as he's gotten older, because there's a bit of a time jump, you know, 10 years or so in between the beginning and the second half where, where Thurber is, is trying to protect people from seeing Pikmin's work, trying to isolate Pikmin. Um, but eventually gets kind of drawn back into his world, finds him at this like dilapidated mansion that he's living in. that doesn't even have electricity and running water anymore. And he's just obsessively painting these horrors in the basement and they get into a conflict and, and basically it's revealed that there's, there's like this well in the bottom of Pikmin's house and like all of these terrible things just come out of it. Right. And he just paints what he sees. Like he, he is painting. <laughs> I'm not making this life. up. It's real. It's all real. Right. Like these are just the things that I've grown up with, the things that I live with. And the, I don't remember the short story doing a thing with like his ancestor being a Salem witch or anything. I feel like that was an addition, but I could be wrong because it does deal with sort of the you know history of Massachusetts. So that could have been in there somewhere, but it's been a long time since I read the short story. Um, but in, in essence, that's kind of it. It's a bit of a one trick pony. The, the highlight of the episode is Crispin Glover's just Horrendous. outlandish performance as Pikmin. Um, you know, you don't see that cat very often. But whenever you do, you know, you're going to see something weird. I mean, is he complaining for a corkscrew um, in the basement? And was it Jason Park Just or whatever? Weird. Now, where's what a the corkscrew? Weird guy. Yeah, I mean, he he's perfect for the character of Pikmin as described because he's like enigmatic and strange and reserved, but yet has this sort of magnetic quality about him that sort of draws people in. Of course, I think in the story, there's also an insinuation that he lures models to the basement and, and feeds them to these things in order to get them to come up. I don't, but don't quote me on that again. I probably should have reviewed the story. I didn't feel the need to, but regardless the way this story plays it out, it's really about Thurber and Pikmin and Thurber sort of trying to isolate Pikmin's ideas so that they don't infect the world with madness. But then at the end there's like a gallery showing of all of Pikmin's work and everybody's looking at it and he's trying to shut it down. And Oh, did he, did he not? And then like the big thing that gets added, and this is not a part of the original story at all is that there goes home and his wife has like, that was pretty cool. Gone, gone a little, she's gone a little dark. Gone mad. Right? Yeah. He's been <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Cause she's been, there's been this like prophecy from the beginning of like, you know, this feast at the master's table and all this different stuff. And, and that sort of comes to pass via Thurber's family. So again, I don't necessarily want to spoil everything. It's just a little uneven. Yeah, it it really. And again, I think a lot of it comes because the short story is very sparse. Yeah. It really is kind of get in and get out. Whereas this one, they really try to expand. And And yeah, yeah, there, I just don't feel like there was enough here. And then maybe what they do emphasize just wasn't, I don't know. It just wasn't, it wasn't enough. Sure. 
like I said, it's it's a it's an uneven episode. It's still very nicely directed by Keith Thomas. Um, it's got it's, some real spooky it, parts. It does have a couple of really really good parts. There's a lot in sort of like darkened graveyards and stuff like that that works pretty well. Um, it's a very middle of the road episode for me for this series. It's just there's it, a lot of goofy it, zooming it in fine. on art to scare you, and like they shake the camera around and oh yeah. the art's moving. <laughs> and and that was one of my issues with it. And this is a problem any time you supposedly have like this master painter who does these amazing pieces of art. None of the art that Pigment produced was especially good or amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I've you know, like, up scarier things than that. It's disturbing, I guess. But it's one of those things like you keep building it up that this art like will make you go mad. And then, you know, we, the audience, see it. And it's like, well, it doesn't seem yeah, that's not really that scary. Seems like the cover of last month's Fangoria magazine, right? Like, it doesn't seem too bad. Um, and that's just a limit. I mean, you, you know, these productions, you know, paintings of, of intense quality take months. Paintings to are expensive. And, and they're expensive, you know, like, you just, or is you can just have a guy in the art team be like, hey, Terry, make a table with a bunch of dead bodies on it. And he'd be like, okay. My house, uh, I already so, have that in my house. <laughs> yeah, I got one of those. That's just what I live with. <laughs> Uh, so yes, I, I'm, I'm, again, I think we're sort of flip flopping some stuff here, but, but we'll see. Uh, all right. So that was your number six. What is your number five? Number five was graveyard rats. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. It was just kind of silly. It was just a really silly <laughs> episode. Like it was funny. Um, and it's, it's in the middle because I really did enjoy it. Uh, cause it's got David Hewlett in it. Dr. McKay. <laughs> Dr. Rodney <laughs> McKay. I always like seeing him because um, he's a funny guy. Uh, but it was it was very silly. Like it surprised me how silly it was. Although the the scares in it as the episode goes on really are kind of gruesome. They ratchet um, up very quickly. Yes. And and the the rats were freaky. Rats coming out of mouths. Rats yeah. Oh, yeah. dragging Definitely. you down into holes. <laughs> but like there's a scene where when they cut to the corpse being dragged into the hole by all the little rats. That was just <laughs> yeah, you just so kind of see the feet get sucked down the hole. It's <laughs> kind of hilarious. Fantastic. <laughs> Again, I think it's a testament to the fact that these productions were allowed to sort of establish their own tone, to kind of do their own thing. And, you know, um uh David Hewlett, again. <laughs> Lieutenant Commander Rodney McKay from uh, Stargate Atlantis and its sequels, uh, among many other things. He was also the pilot that infected the world in the original uh, dawn of the planet of the apes. So take that as you will. Um, But so, yes, uh, my number five was Pikmin's model. So, again, we're kind of in this this nebulous middle section here. Um, So we've, we've already talked about that. Um. So Graveyard Rats is is exactly what it sounds like. It's maybe the most descriptive title of yeah. all of these. <laughs> um, whereas uh, David Hewlett plays a um, an actual graveyard worker, like a guy who actually digs graves. But he, uh, we see him interrupting looters who are trying to loot a grave, a fresh grave, um, and and then looting it himself. So we find out that he is working at the graveyard, but he is using connections at the local morgue and things like that to actually learn about 
riches and wealth that are being buried. And then he goes down and gets it. He's a grave robber. He's now in, he's a grave robber, right? Just a slightly more legitimate grave robber because it touches upon his actual day job. And um, what he's discovered is that a a host of rats are starting to either uh, destroy the bodies before he can get to them or drag them away. And so it is compromising his ability to make extra funds. The rats and, are and working is, together. Right. It's it's a it's a mass rat. It's this is like <laughs> you know? this is like the bad ratatouille. They're not mm, making dinner yes. for us. They're making us dinner. That's right. Yes. If you it's, get my meaning. It's the horror inversion. What Brad Bird <laughs> never thought of when he put ratatouille into the world. Uh, but yeah, he and so he is is locked in sort of battle with these rats for loot. Um, he's trying to get the loot. The rats are taking it, and he gets a lead on. Uh, was the body Clancy Brown? It looked like Clancy Brown to me, and I I forgot to check the credits. I don't know. Um, I I mean, it, it had no speaking voice, but yeah, it, it sure just a looked a whole <laughs> lot like Clancy Brown. So much so that I expected him to sort of like come back later in some form and, and you know, he'd, he'd do something. But I, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. So he gets a lead on this this wealthy man who's died and he's going to be buried with some priceless sword that he got from the king or whatever. And and so he's going to go down and get it. He goes down to get it. And the body is being, as you said, summarily dragged through a hole in the bottom of the casket. Oh, so funny. And, you know, as somebody who has... Uh, I would say mild claustrophobia, but like a really bad thing about caves, like the idea of being stuck in a cave, just, you know, we've talked about like Ted the Caver. Oh yeah. This had some serious Ted the Caver moments. This has got some real Ted the Caver moments where it's like, I'm stuck and I can't get out. Um, what am I going to do? Kind of thing. And, and that kind of stuff has an inherent sort of like, yeah, that's upping, upping the notches of the horror factor for me a little bit, but it, it is all sort of couched in this highly ridiculous performance by David Hewlett, because after a certain point, it's just him in these little like tunnels with rats and he's talking to himself. He's, you know, pumping himself up as he's getting ready to do something ridiculous, <laughs> um, et cetera. Right. And it, it all kind of culminates in a couple of weird spots. It has a, um, the, Kuttner's story that this was based on Kuttner was a contemporary of Lovecraft and sort of they they borrowed from each other from time to time uh, not exactly but Kuttner definitely played a little bit in the sort of eldritch god you know sort of playground and and so that's sort of where this goes um, there's a giant rat at a certain point that is very nice I mean it, a great uh, well designed maquette and puppet like it looked really good um but then it goes a little bit Lovecraftian right at the end, just barely, uh, implying that perhaps these rats are working for a higher power of some kind, but but hard to say. Um, so yeah, it's it's just it's a it's a cool little story. It's it's a bit fluffy for me. Like there wasn't really anything super resonant about it, um, but I, I did enjoy it uh, mostly by because of David Hewlett's performance. I think it's a pretty. It's a pretty great one. The scene of him laying in bed saying his nightly prayers and then like all the rats fall out of the ceiling on him. That was that was pretty good. I like that. Yeah. All right. So any other thoughts on a graveyard rats? No. So that was, it was number five. Yeah, right? it was five for me. 
because like right right in the middle i i liked it i had a good time watching it but it was it did feel a little bit silly at times yeah tonally it it swung hard in different directions and i don't i think that was on purpose again i think they're intentionally doing that because i think if it was just purely dour from start to finish i think it'd be kind of unwatchable like there wouldn't really be any reason to continue so you kind of have to want to see even though this guy's a total just asshole he's a terrible person even though he has that you still kind of want to root for him up until you know the end and and that in and of itself i think is a bit of an accomplishment and again something that is a testament to david hewlett's ability to kind of carry the room if he needs to (laughs) uh great mutton chops too oh yeah High, high quality chops in this episode uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, all right. So that was your number five. My number five again was Pikmin's model. So let's just, just recap where we're at so far. Um, your number eight was lot 36. My number eight was dreams in the witch house, which we've discussed both those. My number seven was lot 36 and yours was dreams in the witch house flip flopped. Your number six was Pikmin's model. Whereas mine was the outside, which we have not talked about yet. Um, your number five was Graveyard Rats, and mine was Pikmin's Model. Pretty much dead center yeah. of the pack for me. Um, so your number four. My number four was The Outside. Nice. This was my Graveyard Rats. This is where I put Graveyard yeah. Rats. <laughs> so we're really four. just swapping them. <laughs> so we're just moving them around. Again, but I think that's because, again, we're what we're really finding are arbitrary ways to try and sort what are pretty thoroughly great episodes from top yeah, to bottom. Like, like we're I, getting... I am enjoying them. Yeah. Like it it feels very nitpicky. My, my thing with the outside was it was also very silly. Um, yes. As soon as I saw Martin Starr's name, I was like, Oh, (laughs) Oh, this will be good. That's what we're, that's what we're in for. Okay. But I truly loved the look and just how almost David Lynchian bizarre it felt sure yeah um especially the way that it'll hang on people with really strange and sort of shifting facial expressions like takes cuts edits go on just a little bit too long to kind of make you uncomfortable (laughs) um which i i really enjoyed that i just i enjoy that and it was also based on something that was written by emily carroll who yes, I a adore. famous webcomic. Yeah. Um, which everybody should adore, Emily Carroll. She's wonderful. Yeah, one of the early uh, individuals to find success in standalone webcomics, right? Yeah. Without like an additional publishing. I mean, she got those later, but you know, her her webcomics alone brought her a tremendous amount of success um in the early two thousand in the early twenty tens, late two thousands, kind of that region. But uh, so this is adapted from one of her web comics and it features uh, i mean there are quite a few characters in it but it really is kate micucci and and martin star for the most part um you know we we do have a lovely little performance from dan stevens here who has become one of my favorite just he just pops into stuff i'll just be like is that dan stevens <laughs> that's, that's dan stevens he's it's just so in this, funny in this he's very funny as this and uh, so, so what, uh, Anna Lily Amirpour has done with the outside here is, as you said, the, the production design, the visual look of this is, is very sort of like 
it's it's modern day, at least I, I believe so. I, I think we're supposed to believe that it's so, somewhat close anyway, but it, it very much has a like that mid nineties vibe is yeah. really popular yeah. right now, but it's, it's ridiculously hard to maintain. Um, and for that, I'll point to the, the current Flanniverse series on Netflix, the midnight club, yep. which Not- also is mid nineties. Yeah. But doesn't What's, the needle drops are getting me on that show. Yeah. They're wrong. A lot of them are wrong. They're, I mean, like for a show that works very hard, like legitimately showing me calendar pages that it's 1995 and then you play a song from 1997. It's like, you guys got to stop. I mean, I know that, I know that like young people watching it might not have like the context, but the big one for me was it's supposed to be like 94 on the show. And then they played Mm -hmm. local H's bound for the floor. And I'm like, that came out in 1996. I know because I was there. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember that. Um, and again, you know, for the audience for that show, which is teens, doesn't matter. Yeah. It's all fresh music to them anyway. But but for somebody who, again, as you said, was there, it's like, I, mm, I don't know about that. I was there with my but, chains on my pants. <laughs> and, and that's kind of it. It's like Midnight Club really focuses on the fashion trends and and everything but the world that it builds inside of that facility is does not feel like the 1990s at all and whereas this i mean the brown shag carpeting the wood paneled walls the um it, it just all fits together and it's very very carefully done so the the basic thrust of the outside is we have you know Kate Micucci who is She's a very attractive woman. She's gorgeous. But but yet they they have built her up in this world. And and she is playing up, you know, both in makeup and hair, some of her more striking facial features, if I can put it that way, some of the things that make her a very unique and beautiful woman and and really playing those up to emphasize that she does not fit with the group of much more typically attractive women that she works with at the local bank. Who are horrible. Um, they're horrible. Like that's the one thing I loved about the show or, or this episode of the show. I, I guess I should specify is that they never really let any of those women be redeemed. No, the, the one that's pushing the aloe glow at their little party. She kind of has a moment where it looks like she does legitimately care for a second. She thinks about someone that's not herself but then immediately slides away from that and back into, you know, this very selfish mode. But it sets up, basically she has, you know, the outside being referred to her is the outside of her, of of herself, right? She feels the need to transform. She feels the need to be something else, even though she has this sort of small, but idyllic life with a guy who just loves her. Granted, he's a bit of a bore, (laughs) I, do, I mean, I, uh, Martin Starr plays her husband, who's like a local sheriff or something. And and he loves her the way she is. She doesn't understand how that's possible. She doesn't believe him. And and it sets up this this desire to change. And so she goes to a Christmas party, believing it's some kind of they say it's like a white elephant gift kind of thing or like a, you know, a secret Santa. It's a secret Santa. And so she is a taxidermist, which, of course, has relevance for later. But she's a taxidermist and she um, actually like taxidermies a duck 
for like the lady hosting the party, not realizing that it's like an MLM scheme party where she's just going to give people her dumb MLM products. And so she does all this work to try and impress them. And nobody really knows to do with that, but they give her this cream. She puts it on. This cream makes all these outlandish. She repeats it multiple times. I forget, but it's like those buzzwords, you know, it has antioxidants and all, you know, all these things that are supposed to like fix your skin. And so she becomes obsessed with using it, even though it's causing her body like physical harm, right? She is hurting herself. She gets hives every time she breaks out. And ultimately it becomes whether or not she will stop using the cream and embrace who she is. If it's itching, that means it's working. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If I'm in pain, that means it's working. And and so it's it's a really, it's one of the smaller episodes. It's pretty contained. Um, maybe not the smallest, but it's definitely on the smaller side really a, a very intense character study more than anything as you kind of see this woman be so completely maligned by societal pressure that she can't see any of the positives in her life. And then of course, as, as things set in, she begins seeing Dan Stevens as the aloe glow guy on screen. And they have these conversations where he's like, <laughs> I love how they all end with by more aloe glow. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like every, like he'll be talking very intensely to her is like by more aloe glow. And then like, he'll turn off or whatever. It's very funny, but it's, it's, it's probably the most overtly comedic episode of the Darkly show. Like comedic, there are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's dark. Don't get me wrong. It's this, it goes to dark places, very dark places, but you know, with Kate McCucci in the lead, Martin Starr sort of delivering a very, a very, I mean, Martin Starr is always kind of restrained, you know, but, but in this one, he seems especially just sort of dull. It's like, I love you, baby. I don't, um, this, eat these wings. It you know? just, <laughs> like that kind of Something about this episode made me really, really sad. I don't know if it's because mm. I'm so susceptible to feeling that way about myself. Um, sure. That, you know, I, I understand the pressure of like buy this skincare thing or, or like uh, what something happened this the other the day. This is the solution. This yeah, is like the this is a solution. Thing. Or, you know, there's there's something irredeemable about you that you would have to change. Um and those things, how how you can kind of create a, a feedback loop and and obsession over it, it's, it's really easy to happen. Like, I I kept seeing a a viral thing about not sleeping with your face on your pillow because it'll give you wrinkles, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know, we don't need yeah. to be telling people they're sleeping wrong. Um, yeah. So, I just I felt a bit more affected by this one because even though it was really funny, it is sort of criticizing something that I think media does to women in particular. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. And I love, I, I really loved how Martin Starr's character just kept saying like, you're perfect the way you are. I love you the way you are. There's nothing wrong with you, but it's not good enough because you have all these outside voices and ironically women's voices, other women that are, that are yeah. sort of tearing you apart. Um, I don't women know, who are really obviously miserable, obviously like and they terrible all people hate themselves and they hate each other and they hate their lives. Like they are, they are truly miserable. And so like when this resolves, and I, I think you're absolutely correct. I think one of the things that gives the episode real resonance is that this is an actual problem, right? This is a real thing that people go through. 
And and like most good Twilight Zone episodes or or good science fiction, it takes something real and then amplifies it to the point that it can't be ignored. Like we're going to push this to the point that probably no one would ever go. But this is if you if you truly believed the things that we're constantly being told by society around you, this is the natural end result, right? The the depths of of sort of I don't want to say evil, but you know the the depths of dis- of self destruction that a human being will go to to quell those social voices, and this episode really carefully plays with those ideas um, to the point that she even eventually sees in Aloe Glow, right? Probably the biggest special effects component of this episode is that eventually she has so much Aloe Glow in her basement that it spills out and it forms like a better version of her, I, I yeah. believe is what we're supposed to see. And, and it sort of chases her around and a little reminiscent of the end of the, of annihilation where she's doubled up. <laughs> right. Like sort of that idea. Yeah, there's the mirroring part, but not, you know, but played for different emotions. Um, but a, a very clever episode, very capably directed, probably the best cohesive production design or one, I'll, I'll say one of the best because there, there's some really bangers <laughs> to the top of this list. <laughs> we're not even but done I think yet. <laughs> the, no, we're not even close. Um, but I think probably one of the best overall designed and, and just anchored by a truly fantastic performance by Kate Micucci that mm-hmm. ends in such a fantastic place. You can, you can read everything you need to know about her and what she's been through in that last sort of shot of the episode. Yeah. Um, which is, is sort of stellar from top to bottom. So again, this is, uh, this was your number four, correct? Yes. Yeah. So this is your number four. This was my number six. So I had a little bit lower down the list. Um, but again, a lot of my like three, four, five, sixes were pretty interchangeable for me. Like the, all of these are kind of in the same ballpark, but, uh, okay. So anything else to say about the outside before we move on to number three? I don't think so. All right. Well then what is your, uh, number three? Um, it was the murmuring, the final episode. The murmuring is also my number three. I, I have a feeling that our I top think we're three are the same. Up again. <laughs> yeah. We've been a little bit hit or miss one or two off. I think we're about to sync up. Uh, the murmuring was also my number three, although it was a strong, if, if, if my number two was not so good, so I know good. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it was not so good, I, I think it would have been my number two. Um, and it may be the one episode that I, you know, my partner is is not a horror person. Um, it has to be an especially well done piece of horror for her, it, mostly of it, with character. Like, she's not a jump scare person. She's not an axe, axe murderer person. Like, she's just not into that kind of stuff. It's not what she enjoys. Um, but if it's horror, you know, so something like The Babadook. Right? Yeah. Um, and so that's where we get the murmuring, which is directed and adapted by Jennifer Kent of the Babadook. And also another one I'll throw out there, the Nightingale, which if you have not seen the Nightingale, you do need to see the Nightingale. That is the Babadook is a scary film. The Nightingale is a brutal film, brutal to watch, brutal to experience, but very, very necessary. Um, so Jennifer Kent is is like, I mean, it's it's rare. I mean, I guess it does happen, but it's rare for somebody to release a single film and then immediately be like, oh, this is one of the best horror directors working today. But it's, 
I mean, it's the Bob Duke, so she she wins. She won that one. Um, but she adapts a short story, uh, another short story by Del Toro here, The Murmuring. <clears throat> and, this was uh, just so really lovely. Us, yeah, tell us a little bit about this one. Um, this is probably the most traditional kind of ghost story. Yes. Um, like haunted house story. For those of you who are Del Toro fans, I'll I'll just interject very quickly and say this one felt most like oh his ghost story, the one he did right before he came to America. Um The Devil's Backbone. Yes. Yeah. This yeah. this one felt like the devil's backbone in yeah. its quality. Just loss and tragedy. And sort of the way that those things make a spirit linger, right? Like all of those similar ideas, I think, sort of come through here. Some some things that Del Toro has attempted to work out on screen before, but now he's sort of handed off to to Jennifer Kent. So yeah, go. Ahead. Um, so a husband and wife, they're they're ornithologists. The the husband is Rick Grimes, for for what it's worth. <laughs> Andrew Lincoln, man. Just, if you're a fan of The Walking right. Dead, um. And they're studying Carl. birds, and they uh, they're both like dedicated to their craft. But it it's sort of unrolled in a very very subtle way that they have lost a child. Um, yeah, there's a little hint right at the beginning, and then you know, sort of we get. And I I love un- that I I, I love when things do that when they don't just come out and say or have like a subtitle that's like this is the Bradleys and they just lost a child like <laughs> or you know they could have done that awkward thing where there's two people having a side conversation talking about it you know while looking at our main characters and I'm I'm really glad that they didn't do that um so they've lost a child and they go. They, they study a very specific type of bird. I can't remember what the bird is called, but they have these really distinct and really beautiful murmurations. And they go to a remote island um, to study a large group of these birds, and they are given the chance to stay in a like abandoned house on this tiny island um, in which they encounter... Well, she encounters. The wife is really the only one who encounters... Uh, the supernatural and right you kind of you get the the picture not at first but you get the picture that their marriage is very strained because of the loss of their child and that also develops and you sort of understand the complexity of it because initially they seem very in love and very dedicated to each other and then the cracks start to show where you know you see just how much of an effect this has had on their marriage. Um, and it's all about this supernatural occurrence or, or encounter and how it helps her cope with the loss. And it's just lovely. It's such a lovely story. Yeah. A shockingly, I mean, I hesitate to say like a beat, but this is one of the few, and as I was mentioning before, this is the one that I feel like I would most be able to share with a sort of non-horror fan, somebody who doesn't really sort of engage with the horror genre on all of its myriad levels, because at its core, it's really this relationship story. It's two very wounded, very broken people. Um, I think it's key that they're both academics, right? So they feel 
this need to kind of navigate this very emotional and very dark experience of losing a child in this very sort of upright and self-critical and analytical way. And, and that sort of all gets torn down and, and coming up and observing these birds and seeing strange behaviors that keep driving them, you know, to the house and to, to spending time there by, you know, in many cases with her just by herself, I think does a lot to sort of break down. I mean, Del Toro has been pretty honest about his feelings about the need to engage emotionally with others that, you know, he had an interview with Mike Flanagan that came out right around the time that, you know, Cabin of Curiosities was being released where he talked a lot about sort of like the role of hate and fear and, and, and how, you know, those are these things that close you off from people, whereas love should open you up to other people. And, you know, this is wonderfully stated as, as someone like Del Toro can, can do. And, and it really feels like this story is working that out right? That these people need to deal with this and they just haven't or can't. And so the spooky events, right? The, the things that she begins to uncover about the house and its inhabitants and what happened to them and where they went, all of that sort of forces her, or I I don't even want to say forces, but it encourages her to finally open up about what she's been dealing with and going through. And I think that that's, as you said, it's, it's just lovely. It's beautiful, and Kent handles it with such a deft hand. It reminds me My a lot of, of the Babadook. In, sure. You know, how that's, that's about coming to terms with loss. And totally. And in a much more horrific way. Like, I think the Babadook is way scarier, um, oh, but by, it sort yeah, of deals with the same, the same themes. Yeah, I think, you know, it's obvious that Del Toro handpicked all of these creators to, to come in and, and do this with him. And, and it almost seems like he knew immediately that she was the perfect person to adapt this particular story. And I don't know. I don't know if he just like threw a bunch of scripts out on the table. It doesn't seem that way. Cause most of these creators have like co-screenwriter credit with, you know, which heavily implies that they were involved in the development, right? They didn't just show up and do a work for hire job with these. Like they yeah. were in full control of the productions from, nearly start to finish. So I, I don't know if he just had an array of projects, like here's the stuff I'm thinking of doing, what is interesting to you, or if it really was a much more collaborative kind of thing, like I really think this would be a good story for you. you know, take a look and see what you think. Because um, Kent is also credited as the screenwriter here. So she did the adaptation. Um, and I, I feel like that's, that's probably part of what makes this episode so successful at what it does. Um, cause again, it's just careful and gentle. It takes its time. It's not rushing. Most of the scares, if you want to call them that are, are, they come from really honest, understandable places. Um, it's, it's really good. Uh, there's also the theme of sort of like the inability to communicate properly with each other, to share information honestly and openly without multiple meanings also plays into what the ghosts are doing. And it's just, it's really, really nicely done. Yeah. So, I mean, this would be the one that if you have a member of your family that's like, oh, I'm kind of curious about those and you want to kind of pique their interest, I might actually start with this one. Yeah. And say, check this one out. And if it's just kind of like what you're liking, maybe we'll watch this one next. Yeah, don't watch Dreams in the Witch House first. <laughs> mm, no, and, unless, they're a, unless they're a huge Harry Potter fan. You can be like, have you ever seen Ron Weasley get chased by a witch? <laughs> I mean, well, oh, whoops. 
<laughs> I guess you, I guess you have, but in, yes, in, in any case, I think, um, you know, it's, this is, is pretty, again, it, it's my number three could have been number two if number two wasn't so damn good. But, yeah. uh, yeah. So the murmuring highly recommended, uh, definitely one of the best episodes of this season. Um, and, and just another piece of evidence that Jennifer Kent is one of the most striking and capable filmmakers that we have working and by God, she just needs to make more stuff. Like, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> she just needs to make more movies. God damn it. So hopefully. We'll yeah. See. All right. So you're number two and I think I know what it is. The Three, autopsy. Two, one. The autopsy. <laughs> see, we did it together. We did it together. I mean, I knew uh, this was going to be the same. As soon as I watched it, I was like, oh, he's going to like this one. This is going to be tops. Cause yeah, this, mm, man. This, this is David this Pryor episode. directing, and it's starring F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham. And it's just, God. and it's so good. <laughs> yeah, this, um, this one is, is adapted from a classic Michael Shea short story. Like this is, Michael Shea did not do a lot of writing in his career. He's kind of like Ted Chiang. Every time dude released a story, it won like all the awards, right? But he didn't release that many stories. Um, and so this is one of his most famous short stories. He was mostly known for his, his novella work. Um, but this, this is such a wall to wall, just banger of an episode. My so goodness. Good. Um, you know, I know I praised lot 36 for being beautiful and it is, but David Pryor is like, he's, he's my little baby Fincher. He's my little baby David Fincher, <laughs> right? And I just want to hold him in my hands and I want to pet his head and be like, you're so good. You're just a good little boy. Um, because this feels like a David Fincher thing. It really does. Um, it's so careful. So many low angles, mm -hmm. glorious, glorious low angles. Oh, it's, it's so refreshing. We've been watching, I've been watching so much TV and so much TV is just flat tripod locked off, you know, just shot straight ahead. You know, Put we only camera move the at camera eye level with the actors and don't ever move it. And we only move it in goofy ways when there's some CG bullshit happening somewhere and we can't have a real camera. So we'll just let them flip it around a billion times or whatever. And, and it's just so refreshing to see someone prioritize camera placement and its role on character and it's just wonderful. Not to mention the fact this one is set in the 1970s when the story was released. And it's just, it looks like it was shot in the 1970s, right? Yeah. Like the, the film grain, the quality of the lenses, like, cause you know, when Fincher wants to do that, he goes and he gets lenses from the 1970s and he throws them on his freaking modern day camera and he shoots it because he's like, well, if it wanted to look like the seventies, I got to use their shit. And it feels like this is the same. I'm sure it wasn't. It was probably all post-production, but it doesn't matter. This one looks wonderful. It is anchored by a truly delightful performance by F. Marie Abraham, who is just firing on all freaking cylinders, man. I mean, yeah. do, you, do you realize that F. Marie Abraham has been a star since 1984? <laughs> yeah, like the dude's I mean, in his 80s like, and doing shit like for, this. For 40 years, this dude has just been racking up the hits, man. 
I mean, since playing Salieri and Amadeus, which is the first time he was working before them, but that's the first time I think anybody really stood up and noticed him was, was that film. And, and he's just, he's just killing it. And, and he kills it in this episode. Um, the thing I love the most about the Michael Shea short story is that you, you really have no idea where it is going, right? Cause it very much starts off as one thing teases that it could be another thing and then just slaps you upside the head with what it actually is. And by golly, it's great. Like just so tightly done here. Worth noting that the screenplay was done by one David S. Goyer. Um, <laughs> but you know, I was thinking, cause as soon as I saw his name on the screen, I was like, Oh, we're in for it now. Great. Right. Yeah. But then I realized this is exactly what David S. Goyer should do. This is what he's best at. Yes. Right. Short things that aren't connected to other things and adapt short things that aren't connected to other things. Sure. Because I think I think he's really good at coming up with with a screenplay, with a script that works for like a, a condensed, isolated story. But when he touches other things, that's when it goes wrong. That's when it goes really wrong and it That's upsets when it can me. go real wrong. Yeah. I mean, at this point, David Goyer's understanding of the structure of the screenplay and the pacing of a story is, is undeniable. Like he's just, he's been working in the industry for too long to still be inept at those things. Um, a, another thing that benefits this here is that it has a built in mechanism for delivering voiceover narration, which is, in my opinion, is a crutch of a lot of David S. Goyer's work is, is a, you know, sort of obsession with voiceover to explain things. So this one has an in-universe reason for, for that, which I think it helps mm-hmm. him to structure the back half of this thing. Um, but regardless, like Goyer writing the script is not a, is not a negative in this case. And, and y- yay. Now, some of that may be prior, you know, sort of mod- modifying as well. I don't know exactly when, you know, they would have come into this if they would have worked on it together or if Goyer had already. What I feel like is that Goyer already had an adaptation of this sort of floating around. He's, this seems like the kind of story that David S. Goyer would pull to try and, and build into an adaptation of some kind. And maybe Del Toro was aware of it and sort of brought him in here. It's hard to say, but uh, again, it the end result regardless of how it came to be, I think is, is pretty excellent. Uh, the basic story, uh, it's the 1970s. There is an incident at a local coal mine. F. Murray Abraham plays an aging um, coroner who is called in to do the assessments of the bodies, and, primarily and because... You kind of get the feeling that he's like the guy, like the guy you call right. when there's nobody he's else to call, call, and I yep. love that. Yeah, I mean, that's worked since The Exorcist, right? Yeah. Like, this is the guy that we call when we have this thing happen. This is the one, you know? Um, and he he shows up, and there's obviously something going on with him. There's, so there's another layer to this that, of course, gets revealed later. But in essence, he's there because the sheriff cannot verify that these men were killed as part of their duties in the mine. And if they are not killed as part of their duties in the mine, then their families will not receive insurance payouts. Which is a great setup. 
It's a great setup. I mean, it's not that he's asking the guy to find evidence to make sure the families get payouts, but he's kind of asking him to make sure that the families get payouts. But he lays out the story of what led up to this incident, which involves a lot of weird shit going on, right? Including like carved up bodies in the woods with pieces missing, strange injuries, you know, other missing, you know, workers in the local area. And, and then everything sort of culminating in this one thing. But now what it comes down to it, after all of that setup is made and that setup compromise, you know, just look at 15 minutes of the episode, really, maybe longer. Um, after all that setup, we get to the, the actual namesake of the title, the autopsy where he does, I mean, physical, practical effects have just reached a point where it's, it's basically indistinguishable at this point, mm-hmm. but I mean, to my mind, he does like legitimate autopsies on these guys, like the Y incisions, it looks skin great. removal. It's awesome. Like it is so intricate and well done. I can't imagine how much those prosthetics cost. I mean, millions of dollars, if not more in, in research development and design. Like It's just exceptional. But when it comes into it, he is in a meat packing company because they don't have a morgue big enough to store all these guys. Fantastic. Which again, beautiful. It's lit. Great. It's this odd place. He's got these weird tables. And so dirty. It's filthy. (laughs) Like it's just, I mean, it looks like something out of seven. That's why the Fincher comparisons keep coming out. It's like, this looks like where the bodies in seven would have been autopsied, you know, just because that world has gone to total shit. But in any case, he begins the autopsy, and of course, he begins uncovering strange things. And then it just takes a turn, like a real solid turn that if you'd been, you know, if you've been paying attention, you probably can kind of see coming. But if you're just kind of along for the ride, it, it may hit you like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> what yeah. was that? Um, and it's great. It's just, it's, it's pitch perfect. And F. Murray Abraham grounds the whole thing, moves the whole thing forward. It's, it's truly excellent. The, the uh, and character, has a fantastic ending. The character dialogue at the end, you know, I won't say what the dialogue is between F. Murray Abraham mm-hmm. and another character is wonderful. Like just a great back and forth. And I, I just loved it. So good. Yeah, there's a little there's a little tete-a-tete at the end of this um, that you would not necessarily expect to see coming that, you know, it the way that F. Murray Abraham plays it, you know, he, in his voice, you can hear that he knows he's won before we understand how he's won. Yeah. You know, if you want to call it that. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's truly excellent. This, this is, if our, if our number one episode had not been so, yeah, so cool. The show actually gets better than this. <laughs> yeah. And this is so good. <laughs> Like when I watched this one, I was like, oh, this, this is the best episode of the show. Like I was hands down, like there's no question because it's so well handled. And, and again, I please give David Pryor money. Please let that man make movies because David Fincher doesn't make enough movies. He's so slow. Yeah. (laughs) He does not make things fast anymore. And I, and I miss having a David Fincher movie every three to four years. And, and you know, I know we got Mank and whatever not too long ago. Yeah, whatever. whatever. But I need more. I need more. Come on, David Fincher. I'm very bored. <laughs> adapt more garbage. <laughs> Turn it into something interesting. Jillian Flynn's got like seven other books and they're all terrible. Adapt them, please. All of them. 
But so, uh, yes, we won't say any more about the autopsy. That's one that I, I think it's actually best if you just kind of go in, not really knowing what's going on beyond the basics that we've established. Um, but another one guaranteed just absolutely tippy top. But uh, there was shockingly an a better episode, episode that was even better. And who, buddy? Uh, so uh, your number one, my number one. It's got to be the viewing. <laughs> the viewing. Directed I'll take by the viewing for five hundred, Alex. Directed by my, my boy, Panos Cosmatos. Um, gosh, mm. golly. I just when we did Mandy, um, I was watching it for for the podcast. And I stopped watching it. I, st- I stopped it and I went and got my partner and I was like, you need, we need, you need to watch this. I just, I need you to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we watched it. Like I, I started it over. I was almost done with the movie. Um, and I started it over and watched it again. And then, then we watched this, the viewing. And last night he said, I've never seen his other movie beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah, the Black Rainbow. Yeah. And so we watched it. And so I've just been saturated in all of his <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and uh, I, I oh, wow, this may be my favorite thing he's ever made, though. The there is I, I don't know if it was a, if it was the time constraint trying to hit an hour. I mean, Mandy's not an especially long film. It's still like just right at ninety, I think, maybe a little longer, but. Um, this one felt swift and clean, like in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, so, okay. A couple of things that you have to note about the viewing. Number one, Peter Weller, Jiminy Christmas. He got Peter Weller out of what basically is acting retirement. Um, you know, Peter Weller has not acted in anything. He's done a couple of TV shows. It seems like, he's basically done one thing a year for the last five years. Cause he's which I think is just, I think it's just what's mandatory to keep your SAG card active. Like, yeah. I think he's keeping he just, he it going for the insurance. He right? just doesn't have to. And, and that's, that's fine. But whenever he does do something, I remember how great he is. He's I just want to see him all the time. He's exceptional. Peter Weller is the cadence of his voice. The timbre of his voice. He's had the same damn face for yeah. 40 years. Like, it's just the same. I I, I don't know. But so um, Peter Weller, Steve Agee. So this this probably has the most stacked cast of all the episodes. Um, all of the episode casts are very good. But this one has a lot of people that, you know, like. Current watchers of media will know, right? Peter Weller, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, hopefully people know who Peter Weller is. Um, but we've got um, Eric Andre. Who apparently really wanted to work on this. That's that's what I saw, too. Like, apparently he had basically told his agent, I want you to hound this guy. And, and the next thing he does, I want I I to be in it to do with it, um, which says a lot about Eric Andre, I think, which I'm not a huge fan of him. Like I, I like his comedy. Just I fine, love him. But <laughs> yeah. Like I, I probably just haven't seen enough of him, but um, 
so we've got Eric Andre, we've got Steve Agee um, from Peacemaker, and he's worked with James Gunn a bunch of times. He was on New Girl. He was outside Dave on New Girl, which basically was a homeless guy that lived outside their apartment and that he they interacted with all the time. He's very good. Um, we've got uh, Sophia Butella, which was a surprise. I was like not expecting to see her. Of course, she was in the disastrous mummy film that we reviewed yeah. not too long ago. Um, but she's done a lot of other things, and she's she's perfectly fine actress. Um, and and then probably the standout was Charlene Yee. Yeah. Um, they are who, so charming in this. Just just exceptionally so. And okay, so the setup. Let's let's. I guess let's not beat around the bush. The setup is the viewing. Right, um, a billionaire Lionel Lassiter, played by Peter Weller, has mysteriously invited four disparate people who we get the impression that they are sort of like experts in their particular fields to a viewing of a curiosity, something that he has at his home that he feels them being able to see will be edifying for their creative careers and possibly they can put their heads together and, and determine what the thing is. Right. That's yeah. And we've kind got of like some different, idea. different disciplines. Cause like we have a, a musician, like a very talented musician. We have a physicist who studies, you know, extraterrestrial life. We have an author um, who I think is definitely supposed to be like a Stephen King stand in. Um, and a psychic who is who is supposed to be who's the spoon bending guy, Yuri Geller, who's definitely yes. a stand in for yep. that. So very uh, interesting mix of people, I guess. I think so. And I, I, I think that's very intentional. Um, one of the things that I have seen people say about this, I, this was not my experience, but um, yeah, I could certainly see it is that this film, you know, Cosmatos in general is is higher on the style scale than he is the plot scale. Um, he is much more interested in the vibe, to use the popular <laughs> term, than he is in the machinations of of plotted storytelling. Um, for him, it feels like at least establishing the vibe of the thing will carry you through the plot of the thing. Like he, I think he, he sees the plot, the mechanisms of the story, the, you know, the bits and bobs of getting from a to B that that is a sort of secondary concern for establishing this very unique universe. That's how I read it. Now, if you're on board for that, I think he's doing that better than literally anybody else on the planet right now. But if you're sitting down to be like, I want to see how these characters deal with this problem. Um, I could see you being a little bit bored with this or because <laughs> or you're confused. Yeah. Just straight up. Like what is going What's on? Going on? Although I've, I've watched it now, I guess three times I've watched this episode and the layers, because the bulk of the episode that starts in a parking garage, Charlene, Yee's character is arriving sort of late to the party, so to speak um, in a beautiful, beautiful late 1970s dots and Z. Um, and, and, you know, we get brief introductions, they get picked up in a van, you know, everything is just sort of carefully designed. This van is gorgeous. It's got all like this like crazy interior. It's got all this, you know, mechanical stuff where they can play music live, which 
you know, whatever. And, and, you know, you start getting to know everybody and where, who they are and what they do and, and so on and so forth. And all that gets spooled out. I love that the, the setup is they get in a stranger's van. Just without question. <laughs> right. Just not even questioning it. Um, but yeah. And so like the, they arrive at this immaculate home, beautifully designed. Like there's really only a couple of sets, like three sets, I guess, that take them into the place. But they're gorgeous. But they're beautiful, like strange geometry. Very red. And <laughs> red and orange. Everything's just sort of multi-layered. Everybody's trying to figure out like what is this place and and who is this person because they know him as this you know elusive billionaire, but they don't really know anything about him because he's sort of fallen off the map for you know years. And so there's all of this intrigue about that, but the bulk of the episode is a conversation, an extended conversation about things like rarity, value, um, drugs, sort of. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely true. Um, the the effects of of how things change over time, that time changes things, um, and that that the flaws that occur over time give value to things. So there's there's all these discussions, you know, both of their careers and the things that they've done, so that we as the audience sort of firmly understand why these people are here. But then you also have at the core of it this Peter Weller performance, where he's playing. I mean. I'm not going to call it a stock character, but it is a bit of a stock character in that it's the billionaire that's so wealthy that they feel that they have and know everything. Yeah. Right. Like that's really what this is, is delving into is the hubris of a human being that believes that money gives them control of the universe. Right. Cause that's a theme that also comes up in all the conversations is this idea of control. Like Lassiter owns people that do work just for him so that he can have these unique sort of bespoke experiences, um, whether they be drugs or music or architecture or, yeah. you know, whatever. And so like the bulk of the episode is that. And if you're not on board for that, if, if the vibe didn't get you to a place where it's sustaining your interest through that, then, you know, the sort of big shift at the ending as, as they actually do the viewing Maybe it wasn't enough to keep you going because I've talked to a couple of people now who are like, eh, I didn't really like that one that much. And I said, are you insane? I mean, do you not understand? <laughs> like, I, I just maybe it won't be for everybody, but it will be for people of taste. <laughs> I I think it's pretty undeniable. The, the technical I mean, understand this is the third thing that Panos Cosmatos has directed. Yeah, the third Right. Like he's directed two very good movies and this. And it's like, I've and all never. All I want to do is see more. It's just more. Yeah. Just, just, it's like David Fincher. Just make more shit, man. Please. Yeah, I don't even care what it is. <clears throat> like his necrocosm thing that's, that he's got mm -hmm. planned. I don't care what it is. I just want to see matter. it. I just want to see what it looks like. And, and that's so cool to have a filmmaker who's that visually distinctive and arresting that just the visual style of his work is enough to kind of get you in, you know, get you on board, get you in the door, at least for me. Um, you know, so I acknowledge it's probably not for everybody, right? Like I don't think this would be number one for all people, but those people I, are I wrong. Think, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it's obvious. And I think this of all of these, this one feels like del Toro just going to him and saying, I love your work. What do you want to do? 
because this is the only one of these that is not an adaptation. Yeah. This is an original story by Cosmatos and his co-writer Stuart uh, on. And this just, this is very, like I can see people watching this show and being taken aback by this episode because it is, it is different. Yeah. It's, it's wildly different than everything else in this, like completely different, different look, different visual style, different, you know, approach to the effects. Um, and again, it's, it's hard to convey in words, the sort of hyper saturated semi surreal quality of Cosmatos's cinematography. Um, you know, the, the simple catch all would be, it looks like the late 1970s, like 1970s, like porn. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's so um... overblown and soft and shiny and lots of reflections and like weird, you know, like lens flares and it's, but it's very specific. Like you, you can't do it without doing it on purpose kind of thing. Yeah. And, and if you, if you tried to dial this back or, or make it less, you would lose it. Like it has to be like a full throttle kind of unhinged dedication to this style. Otherwise it, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, I, I think you have to go all in on it. And whatever he's done, he's talked a lot about, like, because Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow are both set in sort of these fictional 1983s, which is the year before he was born. And he's explained in interviews that it, the reason he kind of likes that time frame, this is set in 1979, so a bit before that. But I, apparently what is, is magical about that time period is that since he didn't exist then, and he is completely reliant upon film and television and other people's stories to construct what that world felt like that in essence, what he's showing us is what that world feels like in his mind. Yeah. Right. Cause he has, he has no direct connection to it, right? No way to understand it as it truly was. So it's all being filtered through the unique experience of his mind and, and whether or not that's like some, you know, Tim Burton, you know, I'm an artist. You know, I I don't get that impression but, from Cosmatos you know, at all. But at the but, same time, I remember being really excited about Tim Burton's work at one point in my life. It was so, was it around the time Dumbo came out? <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's how it feels to discover an auteur. And at yeah, one time, definitely. we like the world felt that way about Tim Burton until mm-hmm. he just clearly wasn't that guy. Um, and there are several directors that I, I feel this way about, or I felt this way about, but it's been a long time since I've been so excited about a dude's movies. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, he's reached a point for me where like, I'm, I'm going to watch anything that he puts out. No yeah. question. Like I'll, I'll seek it out immediately as soon as I can. Because it's just such a unique thing. So I guess to sort of dispense with the story itself, you know, they, they, they have this extended conversation. He intentionally gets them all high, uh, all except for Charlene Yee. Charlene Yee does not really indulge. Like he gives them all, he knows their favorite drinks. So like, um, you know, Eric Andre's character loves uh, Oolong Sushong. Lapsang Sushong. Uh, Lapsang Sushong. Which tea, is a sorry. smoked black tea. Yeah. It's and, and it's so it's, it's like, a very unique experience. 
And he's like, how does he even know that I love this? Yeah. Uh, Charlene Yee's, her favorite drink is ginger ale. <laughs> so, you know, just like, and so she doesn't indulge very much. And, and ultimately they go into this viewing and it is an, it is an artifact that is not of this earth. And that's, that's really all I guess we need to say. And, uh, you know, it's worth saying Steve Agee is playing. I, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, he's like Stephen King. But I'm like, no, he's more like Dean Koontz. <laughs> like, he's, he's yeah. more like, a, well, more like an really, asshole Dean Koontz It's really the you know? drug use. Like, when he starts talking about the, the drug right, use right, right. That, that gave off the Stephen King vibes. Yeah, because he's supposed to be this highly successful author. He makes a joke about, well, I don't know if being successful means selling more books than corn dogs at the state fair or, you know, whatever. Um, and then we have this sort of pretentious little, like, I guess he's supposed to be a psychic. Um, he's, he is, is literally Yuri Geller. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be the inspiration. Yeah. Like there's, Cause they, there's they no talk question. about, there was a crack about bending spoons. I forget what yeah. the line was and it's like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I see what you did there. There is a bodyguard named Hector who plays uh, a bit of a role in the story. Oh, and then of so course, Sophia, he's really good. Um, and then, of course, uh, Sofia Botella plays uh, Dr. Zara, um, who is uh, Lionel's personal physician who mostly just dispenses drugs and, and insane mixtures of said drugs. I love when she starts just flinging cocaine everywhere and, and cutting weird <laughs> shit into yeah. the cocaine. Like, it just that was some weird really blue great. Stuff. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um. But yeah, I mean, again, I don't feel like we need to talk about the ending of it, but needless to say, it's, it is a slow burn. I mean, there's no question about it. There's, there's not, I do, you know, nobody's getting chased through holes in the ground by rats. I do want to point out but, one thing yeah. and I, I think I can say this without spoiling anything. This ends on a shot that of a, of a creep of a character emerging and looking out kind of over a zoomed out city and mm -hmm. it ends in the exact same sort of framing and shot setup that beyond the black, black rainbow does. Which I found yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I was like, is this like an Arborea thing? This, this movie? Cause I feel like they were so much more similar. Like Mandy is kind of the outlier because I, I feel like sure. be, I feel like Beyond the Black Rainbow and this vibed really, really well. <laughs> this is the one episode of this that feels like if they do a season two, that this one could have a direct follow up, like a, a sequel to this, um, which I'm not saying is mandatory. I, I don't think they would have to by any stretch. And again, he may already be tying it into his other existing properties slash universes. Um, but this is the one that I think could have been most easily adapted into an actual standalone two-hour film. Like, this could be a movie, conceptually. Like, the first act of a, of a longer thing. And so I don't know, I have no idea, you know, what those, those rights issues may be, or if they've already planned, you know, something to bring Cosmatos back and let him continue telling the story. Cause there are very clear openings for a sequel to this, this concept. Um, so I, I have no idea. 
And but again, like I said, it's worth noting that this is the only original screenplay produced by one of the directors of these episodes, not an adaptation from an existing story or property, just straight up. We did this for the show. So I, I'm very curious to see where it goes. Um, if he's setting up something that'll tie into Necrogasm and we just don't know about it yet, I'm good with that. That's cool. Um, if it's something that, you know, Del Toro plans to bring him back for a season two and then make this like the re- the one recurring story every season that you've kind of watched the next part of, then that's fine too. But I love, but, um, I love anything uh, that can make me look at a single like shot and go, oh, it's just like the other thing. It's just like the thing. And I go back and, and I'm, I'm like comparing types of, of shots that he makes in his movies. Like that's always just really exciting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's uh, it, it's pretty exceptional when a guy, again, this early in his career, like, you know, cause Manos has been working for a long time. He's been, he worked on movies with his dad in the nineties. So, I mean, he's, he's been in the film industry for 30 years. So he's not, like an ingenue, right? Like, but in terms of his own directed work, he is incredibly early in his career. And I, I just, I'm so excited to see what he does next. Yeah. Because whether it's terrible or not, it's going to be interesting no matter what, you know, like it's going to be a fascinating thing, whether it's, you know, arbitrarily good or not. And that, that in and of itself is exciting. So, so yes, our, our number one, hands down, for the two of us, at the very least, Panos Cosmatos, the viewing. So um, good. So good. The circular room that they sit in, beautifully designed, marvelously shot. I cannot stress how great Peter Weller's performance is in this. Such a deft hand, so sure. Apparently, they didn't even have to ask. They didn't even have to send him a script. Pano, he, he was aware of Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos called and offered him the role and he's like, yep, no question. I'll be there. You know, I mean, and that again, for a dude with two movies under his belt to get Peter Weller to just like come out of semi-retirement and I don't know, skip a couple weeks of teaching whatever romantic history class he's teaching at UC Berkeley. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. So again, Charlene Yee's fantastic in this. Um, she gets a beautiful couple of moments in this thing. Um, really good to see her. I believe in this and, and doing. Her, I believe it's doing they. Charlene is a they. Is it they? Oh, yeah. I apologize. No, that's fine. Yes, really good to to see um, the performance that uh, that they give. So um, exceptional, like I said, just just great. Really good. Uh, I uh, I had a blast watching this. I did series, too. Which I, I. This is like just what I needed. Yeah, totally. Like it was just such a refreshing thing. Um, as as Wong said in the She Hulk show, we really are at a time of peak TV, and and it's a lot of that television. However, I I don't find super palatable. Like some of it's fine, a lot of it's not. Uh, this was very refreshing, and yeah. and just a wonderful anthology series comprised of incredibly talented people just being given the opportunity to do what they do best. And when you let people do that, you get great stuff. I mean, it's just that simple. And f- hopefully Del Toro in this sort of like grandfather of horror role that he's occupying now, he can continue to surface exceptional horror directors and writers, give them a platform 
amplify them and get them, you know, sort of out into the public so they can continue to do cool work. Cause that's, I, I feel like that's a function of this show. I think that's what he's trying to do. All of these director choices feel very careful and very specific to make sure that these people that he respects and that he has found a love for their work have a platform to continue to make exceptional things. And, and that's exciting. He said, you, you kind of need advocates in a, in a town like Hollywood these days. You know, you need that Alan Ladd Jr. who looks at George Lucas, reads the script for Star Wars and says, I don't get this. I don't understand this. But I like you. So just go do your thing, man. Just, yeah. you know, bring me a movie in two years. It's all I can ask. And this feels kind of like that. It feels like Del Toro sitting down being like, oh, well, I, well, except he does understand. <laughs> but it feels like Del Toro sort of calling those people in the office and being like, this is your shot. I'm going to give you the football. Run it down the field. Bring yeah. it to me when you're finished. And that's that's cool. That's super exciting. Um, so, yeah, all I can say is I hope we get a second season. Uh, I have no yeah. idea how well it did. Netflix does not you know, publish its ratings or whatever their internal metrics are. But I know it was in the top 10 for quite a while um, and, and certainly did make some buzz online, although perhaps not as much as it should have. Hence our desire to discuss it here and sort of amplify it a little bit. Say, hey, yeah, sadly, give this you thing know, a look. pieces of shit like the Jeffrey Dahmer show kind of no, overshadow really it careful, in terms of drama. That's a careful examination. Of Fucking that. garbage. <laughs> garbage. Um, yeah, apparently we're going to get more of those. Uh, the current, the, uh, the, the current feeling is that we're going to get a John Wayne Gacy series now. Just abysmal. From the same people, uh, which phew, maybe they so won't cast bad. him as sexy this time. Says, I don't think I can handle sexy John Wayne Gacy. I don't, I, I don't think that's okay. I mean, <laughs> that's a, that's going to be rough. <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. I don't know. Maybe they can put Evan Peters in a fat suit. They can just hey, you have know, Evan Peters I mean, star in all of just, these. Evan Peters is every serial killer in history. Fantastic. I can't wait for the BTK episode. Maybe oh he'll God. watch it from prison oh and feel God. and feel validated. Blah. It's disgusting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that's what's stealing the spotlight from things that are truly wonderful and artistic and worth your time like this show. Yeah, so you should watch sure. this. Watch this, not that. Watch this, not that. Exactly. That's our. That's what the show really is. Watch this, not that. Um, but yeah. So, any final thoughts on Cabinet of Curiosities? Like I said, we'll we'll hit our rundown real quick. But uh, any last bit of business? Guillermo del Toro is adorable. I just want to say it again. <laughs> I will say one of one of the only things I wish this show had was I wish he did outros as well. Yeah. I wish he came back out and put the stuff back in the cabinet. And gave a little like, hmm, wasn't that something? What did you think of that? You know, like, because not all anthology shows have done that, but I do like it when they bookend it. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents, you know, obviously did. Um, I, I That's the one thing about his, I love his intros, but I wish he came back for a little like 20 or 30 second outro for each episode too. Just to sort of put the button on it, put away the cabinet, you know, like I and think that was like a clever pun. Yeah, exactly. Like a, a, just a little... And you know, think about that, won't you? Won't you? Right? you know, like that kind of thing, <laughs> which may have been Pat. You know, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these stories, when they end, they end, you know, on their own sort of resonance. Uh, 
but I, I still think for this series, I would have liked to have seen that just a bit. But uh, okay, so just to recap our lists, make sure that everybody sort of knows. Uh, starting with number eight, my number eight was Dreams in the Witch House. Your number eight was Lot 36. My number seven was Lot 36, and your number seven was Dreams in the Witch House. Um, my number six was The Outside, and your number six was Pickman's Model. My number five was Pickman's Model, and your <laughs> number five was Graveyard Rats. My number four was Graveyard Rats, and your number four was Outside. And then our top three combined were The Murmuring, The Autopsy, and The Viewing. So that's our suggested watching list. And uh, I think if you enjoy definitely the top three of those, even if you don't watch the rest of them, uh, that top three is some high quality horror entertainment. Um, that's, uh, I think we can stand behind pretty confidently. Those three episodes will give you some unique experiences uh, from some talented, talented folks. Uh, all right. So uh, I guess we will wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us and listening to our discussion of the cabinets of curiosities. Uh, and hopefully we will be able to be back in hopefully sooner rather than later to talk about a second season of cabinet of curiosities because by golly, it deserves it. Um, all right. So where can somebody find you on social media to share their own personal list of their top eight favorites from the cabinet of curiosities? I, I post gifts of Panos Cosmatos movies on uh, Baskinator on Twitter.com. And, and I would love to tell you that that's one of my regular jokes about my Twitter, but I actually do that. So, so that's just true. I can, I can <laughs> verify that. Yes, it is a Panos Cosmatos stan account. Yeah. Um, it, which, I mean, I think you just recently got verified. So, I mean, you can just rename yourself <laughs> to Panos Cosmatos. To <laughs> yeah, just, you're, you're the Panos Cosmatos official GIF account. <laughs> and uh, and the world will know uh, if you want to find me on Twitter at least for now until that <sighs> burning hellscape actually burns down thanks to our Lord and Savior Elon Musk um, you can find me at T Baskin uh, I am currently setting up some additional socials I think you can find me T Baskin at c.im on Mastodon I think that's the server I joined uh, because James Gunn joined it. And I was like, well, sure, I'll be on the same server. As <laughs> oh, James yeah, Gunn. I got it's all fine. of those, too. Yeah, we'll we'll get those out there at some point. Uh, we're I'm still sorting through all that my, stuff. My I know Mastodon my is on too, Game and, Dev Place. <laughs> and that's very cool. I mean, that's a, that's applicable like you. That's where you belong. So that's good. Hey. Um, but yeah, so you can get us at uh, T Baskin or at F Peace Theater if you want to get us both together. Uh, and of course, you can email us at failurepeace at Gmail. Com. Uh, all right. So we've had a couple of movies on the back burner that we've sort of slid out of the way to talk about some TV projects like Cabinet of Curiosities. So we'll probably head back to one of those next week uh, and hopefully find some more failure pieces, movies that maybe they didn't find an audience. Maybe they weren't as successful as they could have been, but they're still worth your time. Thanks. And we'll see you then. Bye bye.